Hi, I'm Hugh Richards, head of digital investment banking at JP Morgan and the host of our podcast series, What's the Deal? In each episode, I'll be joined by global business and industry leaders to look at the trends driving deal-making today and how they're transforming businesses and industries around the world. In this episode, we have two experts lined up to share their perspective on one of the most rapidly evolving global themes. The topic is a three-letter acronym that's transforming corporate agendas, business models, politics, and more, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And we're here today to explore the impact of the various industries and clients we cover. But we're also going to touch on our own perspective on how we look at this issue across JP Morgan and Chase and how we think it's changing banking and the financing of companies worldwide. I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Brian Lehman and Marissa Buchanan. Brian is the head of the Greed Economy coverage team within the Commercial Bank. He leads this new initiative, advising our clients driving the green economy, which are companies that produce environmentally friendly goods and services or who focus on environmental conservation. Marissa is head of sustainability for JP Morgan Chase. Overseeing the firm's ESG efforts, Marissa consults with our risk teams on environmental and social matters and engages with our banking teams and clients on ESG and sustainability best practices. Welcome, Brian and Marissa. I'd like to welcome you to What's the Deal? Thanks for having us, Hugh. Great to be here. Likewise. Thanks so much. Great. Well, I really have to thank you for taking the time out to do this. It's wonderful to have two people together with such unique perspectives. Brian, you've had 20 years of experience in investment and commercial banking, very similar to myself. Spent a significant part of your career in equity capital markets and equity derivatives. But Marissa, your career has been dedicated to environmental and energy issues since the start. You started out in policy and then became a research analyst before joining JP Morgan. Tell us a little bit more about how your individual paths led to your current roles and what that says about how companies are addressing this topic of ESG. So mine was kind of a longer journey. I've always been, from a personal perspective, more of an outdoor enthusiast. It was about five years ago when my personal interests started to collide with my professional interests within the financial institutions world where I built a business called Diversified Financials. I ran into a company at the intersection of renewable energy and finance. And from that point forward, a love affair was born where I was looking very deeply into the inner workings of that company, looked at the competitors of that company to the left and to the right. And really, I was just more and more fascinated with how companies with a profit motivation, earning a return on behalf of their investors, could also meet a very important mission orientation, which is to be on the right side of the climate change line. There are a lot of folks out there, very similar to me, who are really incented to make a difference and do so in a way that makes capitalism ultimately thrive. Great. Well, Marissa, I'd love to switch then to your perspective in terms of where you started out. So I've had a bit of an untraditional path towards getting here to J.P. Morgan, where I've been for almost 10 years now. But I spent 10 years before J.P. Morgan working across the nonprofit sectors as well as the private sectors to think about how to use business to drive positive impact. And so I ended up going back to grad school. And when I came out, ended up going to work for a renewable energy company and actually spent several years doing renewable energy and methane mitigation working both at the nexus of project development as well as policy. And through that work and my relationships, ended up coming to J.P. Morgan and joined J.P. Morgan really with a blank slate to say, what can we do to change this institution and do more to make a difference on issues like climate and sustainability, but fundamentally do it in a way that is ultimately about supporting our clients and our customers. Very interesting. And thank you for sharing each of your individual journeys. So I want to just talk a little bit more holistically about where we are in sort of the ESG journey. I think it's probably an understatement to say that 
around ESG, whether it's environmental or social or governance, is still a very fraught issue around the globe. There are significant regional differences. There's significant political differences. And what I'd love to hear from you is how real is this trend? Is it a thing that has now gotten so much momentum that the world will continue in this journey? Or is it still subject to many of the headwinds that you have both been fighting against for such a long period of time? You know, it's a question I think about a lot. And I have to say, you know, I've been at JP Morgan for almost 10 years and I've been, frankly, just in awe to the extent to which enthusiasm around ESG has really taken off in recent years. I've really seen the traction within our institution take off as the interest has grown within our clients and our customers. ESG is a lot bucketed in there. So I increasingly challenge people to say, instead of using the term ESG, actually spell it out. What are the issues that you're specifically talking about? Secondly, I think there are ongoing discussions, especially regionally, about the extent to which the business community has a responsibility to address key societal issues. We've seen historically places like Europe lean more forward into ESG because there is a sense that the business community has a real responsibility to step up and address a lot of societal challenges. That's not been as sort of widely adopted in the U.S., although things are starting to change. But there's still a lot of differences of opinion on how businesses should be addressing some of these issues. For us at J.P. Morgan, we really think about ESG in sort of two concepts. One is running a responsible business. It's just being smart. And I would say these are things that we've been doing for a very long time, but ESG is a way for us to talk about and communicate what we're doing more explicitly with a number of audiences who increasingly care about these issues. And then the second is thinking about really how we use the strength and power and resources of our business to make positive impacts in society in places where we can and where it's really appropriate for us to weigh in on. So Brian, I want to switch a little bit and talk about your clients for a moment. We sometimes think of this as a new segment of the economy, but as you rightly pointed out, there have been companies around this space for a meaningful amount of time. And aside from operating around the green economy, have you seen any characteristics of how these companies operate beyond the sector they work in? Do they do anything differently as a company that you might have seen with some of your clients that you've worked with over the past 20 years? So there's a common thread where many of these folks are looking to do something bigger than themselves and making an impact by virtue of joining uh, private and public organizations with their own specific contribution to the economy, developing technologies, utilizing investor capital to grow platforms where the end result is to decarbonize the globe. And so that's why we are set up the way we are. If you think about the four potentially disparate businesses that we classify as the green economy coverage, The first is renewable energy. And so we're not just simply focused on the producers of clean energy, but it's also the developers. It is many technologies, whether it's solar, wind, at some point in time, it could be nuclear, it's hydrogen, it's also storage. It's as well the entire value chain in the production of clean energy. The third and the fourth Buckets of our coverage within the green economy would be food tech and ag tech as the third, and the last one being efficiency technology, how software makes a meaningful impact in enhancing the efficiencies of the industrial complex. But the common theme amongst all of those verticals is that these private entities are hell-bent in 
attracting institutional capital to get them from where they are to where they need to be, commercializing their product, developing a profit at some point in time with the single focused mission of impacting climate change. If you're all enjoying this conversation as much as I am, you can subscribe to this as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. JP Morgan's At Any Rate, Market Matters, and Tech Trends are all available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So Brian, let's stay on that institutional capital point for a moment. When you look at the amount of ESG deals that are coming to market, different types of transactions, whether it's across green bonds or green loans or green convertible issues, et cetera, it feels as though there's quite a lot of acceleration. We've also seen some very high-profile announcements of ESG investing mandates around the globe as well. What sort of specifically triggered this acceleration? Does COVID have anything to do with it? Is it global politics or is it just really just a series of multiple triggers and the timing was just right? I think it's a combination of a number of factors, Hugh. What we now have is a Biden administration very much incented and focused to change the outcome of our infrastructure in the United States, as well as implement more renewable energy into an aging grid for those points before mentioned about reliability and cost effectiveness. I think it's that. I think it's also just awareness, right? When you think about the policy impact that is made here in the United States, as well as what Marissa had mentioned in Europe um, and other parts of the globe, when you bring awareness to the fore, and then when you sprinkle in the ingredients of the advent of the information age, where what technology does at scale today is something that wasn't available 10 years ago. You add to that the levelized cost of energy coming down because the manufacturing of solar panels has gotten ultimately a lot cheaper, as an example. It's just become far more commercial. And so you have literally a positive, perfect storm for a coverage effort like the green economy coverage that we have set up to work. And what that still means, though, is that there are many high growth companies with great ideas and advanced technologies that aren't necessarily yet commercialized and need incremental capital to grow. And that will ultimately be J.P. Morgan's job, the way we deliver the firm for any other company within the J.P. Morgan client ecosystem. It's providing sound advice. It's bringing the right capital, the right ideas at the right time, consistent with where they are in that company's life cycle. We can serve companies on the other side of a seed round to the most complex, publicly traded, institutional platform with tentacles throughout the entire globe. Fascinating. And Marissa, you mentioned right at the beginning about your interest when you first started in this about market-based solutions and integrating the ESG agenda and commercialism and finance. When you see the progress that is being made in the capital markets today, how do you feel versus your expectations several years ago? I think the thing that I'm sort of watching right now is the fact that there are so many public commitments now, which are fantastic and critically needed. But I also think it's important that we don't diminish or underestimate the challenge that we face. We are still in a world where global greenhouse gas emissions are continuing to rise. Fossil fuels continue to dominate our energy economy globally. We still have millions of people around the world without regular access to electricity, clean water, things of that nature. So I do think over time, what's going to be really important to watch is to what extent do all of these commitments 
actually materialize into real change and impact on the ground. And I think a big piece of what Brian and so many of his colleagues are working on is thinking about how to really catalyze the development of new technologies and solutions to actually drive these real changes. Yeah, that's a great point. How it all comes together at the end of the day to drive tangible change is part of the challenge. And on that point, which raises some of the complexity in doing this, is this isn't an individual corporate effort. All of these actions around ESG really require some form of collaboration similar to yours and collective action across industries. So how do you see that dialogue today? And Marissa, let's take it from the big bank perspective for a moment. You know, obviously, JP Morgan has made a, some public commitments. We have our Paris-aligned policies. How is the banking industry coming together to sort of engage in these ESG topics? Is it as a united front, or are we still pursuing these things on an individual basis? So I think there's been a lot of positive movement across the financial industry more broadly. There is a sense that the demand for financing to support things like clean energy, sustainable development, energy efficiency, you know, new business models. That's something that I think all financial institutions are seeing around the world because it's coming from their client and investor base. So everyone, I think, is trying to respond, you know, in a way to really capitalize on those opportunities. But a lot of these challenges play out in local contexts. Climate change, I think, is a unique issue in the fact that greenhouse gases, no matter where they're emitted around the world, end up contributing to global climate change. So this raises issues where one country can do as much as it can to reduce emissions, but if other countries don't take similar action, you're not actually going to solve the problem. And so this is where global cooperation becomes really, really critical. I know it's one reason why there is a lot of excitement around the fact that the U.S. is back at the table with the Paris Agreement and trying to drive action on climate change. But a lot of the changes that are going to have to take place will come back to the energy industry and questions are going to arise around what do these changes mean for certain industries, for certain companies? Are there competitive disadvantages that get created? Are there geopolitical considerations that need to be factored into policy and policy decision-making? None of this is easy. I think one reason why we started to see so much action really originate at local levels, so cities States, communities, you know, stepping up and saying, hey, we can't wait for sort of global cooperation. We're going to have to take matters into our own hands and do what we can. And I think many are also recognizing that climate change, while obviously a hugely important issue, you know, there are still a lot of local issues that communities face around pollution, economic and racial disparities. In many cases, these environmental and social issues are directly linked to each other. And so, You know, I certainly don't want to underestimate the impact that communities and companies and other partners can have in very local communities to make them as sustainable as possible for people who are living here today, in addition to thinking about what we can do in terms of policy and other long-term corporate commitments to, you know, really think about how we create a more sustainable future for generations to come. And Brian, what levers do you think your clients feel that they might be able to use in order to bring some of this, whether it's across an industry or global cooperation? Because obviously, one would think that much of their future success would be accelerated by increased cooperation globally. How do they feel that they can influence that outcome? Those things ultimately get done at the very local level. But it extends further than that. I could see the influence of capital markets and what practitioners in finance could do to making more liquid and making it secure the notion of a carbon tax. 
And we have credits that exist today, renewable energy credits that ultimately are traded. They're not the most liquid of, we'll call it loosely securities or certificates, but imagining a world where the emissions that they produce by virtue of their activities, having that be a worldwide tradable instrument where you have that portability and that ability to trade that as a specific asset. There's real power behind that, and it requires a level of global coordination, specifically because of what Marissa had mentioned. You know, someone who is emitting pollution in India impacts folks everywhere else. And so having that portability is very important. And finding a way for finance practitioners to develop a market in and around that, I think, will be critically important over time. And I think one of the other things that I've noticed, you oftentimes come back to whenever we're talking about environmental, we focus on the fact that there's also, Marissa, you just said it, there's actually a social element to that as well. Brian, when you're talking about environmental and then you switch to market structure, you're talking about governance. These three initials, this acronym is really sort of a unit. It's very, very integrated. But we tend to focus a lot on climate when we see ESG. So I just wanted to delve into the other topic, the middle initial, social. Obviously, companies have had to move into a very different zone and continue in parts of the world to have to be very concerned about their employees' welfare. Society, obviously, during the COVID-19 period and previously is addressing a lot of issues around social justice. How tangible is it for companies and financial institutions like us to actually do something about this on long term? How do you see that unfolding? I really like how you called out the fact that the E, the S, and the G are so integrated. I sometimes find ourselves trying to like draw really bright lines between the three, but that is actually artificial and I think underestimates the extent to which all of these things are so closely linked and frankly drive one another. So the S for us is really relevant as a financial services company in terms of how we attract, recruit, and you know retain talent and everything that we do around that making sure that diversity and inclusion is a central pillar of how we think about our people strategy, because we know diverse talent is really ultimately going to get us the best talent across the firm in everything that we do. Another critical piece is thinking about externally, sort of how we use our business, coming back to the fact that we know that there are huge racial and social and economic inequalities in various parts around the world. The challenges are different depending upon the region, But we've really been doing a lot at J.P. Morgan over the years to use our business capital and client relationships, as well as our own capital, including, you know, grant capital and other types of low-cost, flexible capital to drive more inclusive economic growth and opportunity. And some of the key places where we're focused are around supporting workforce jobs and skills, financial health small business development, as well as affordable housing and community development. So taking sort of those key goals or pillars and thinking about how we can work with partners on the ground, with clients, with policymakers to craft locally appropriate solutions to really help people and communities. And, you know, we always say healthy communities, frankly, are things that are really going to drive the global economy. And that's where we in particular can make a huge impact in people's lives on a day-to-day basis. And Brian, how does that resonate with you? Do you find that your new green economy entrepreneurs, do they also have a bias towards being quite active in the social and governance areas as well? I would say unequivocally, and it's inextricably linked, as it's been mentioned before, 
just thinking broadly about communities and the impact of the work that the companies within the green economy have on those communities. How about food safety? Mm. The delivery, consistent delivery of food that is nutritious, sustainably harvested, grown, and delivered in an efficient way where it's transforming the logistics that persist in this country that are far less efficient than they should be. And also just impressing upon the impact of pollution in urban areas that might have a disparate impact on those with a different socioeconomic background. These are things that are at the table. They are talked about. They are funded in philanthropic ways Mm -hmm. because they recognize the importance of not only the environmental impacts of the good work that they're doing, but also the social impacts as well and how they're connected. We started on three separate initials, ESG, and we brought it full back around to the fact that they really aren't separate at all. They're fully integrated. I think that's a a remarkable message. I am going to ask you a few questions before we wrap up. I'll ask you both for some predictions as we look forward to what the future of ESG holds for all of us. So let's start with get into our time machines and let's talk about 2030. So a little less than a decade from now. What core sustainability practices do you think have been globally adopted? Just one or two. I'd love to hear it from you, Marissa and Brian. Sure. I think you're going to see even more corporate voluntary commitments around things like carbon neutrality, 100% renewable energy, using carbon offsets to offset things like air travel and other employee travel. I also think you're going to see much more widespread reporting on all these issues and we'll likely even see mandatory reporting. That's my guess. And I'm focused really on technology adoption, where taking, for example, direct air capture, some of the mobile nuclear technologies that are still sort of in the lab phase, those becoming commercialized such that where we are in 10 years is so much more progressively positioned versus where we are today. We have to continue to dream big and to set these large targets. And then we have to make sure that we find a credible way to track our performance and making sure we get there. I'm going to keep pushing the crystal ball here just a little bit further. I think with many of our initiatives, whether it's digital or ESG, we know we will have won, for lack of a better word, when it just becomes business and doesn't have to be called out as a separate theme. It'll just become business as usual. Do you think we achieve that by 2040, Marissa? I hope so, Hugh. I wonder on that note if we'll even still be using the term ESG, whether it just goes away entirely or whether there is another term that we're using in its place. But I think we're in the next 20 years going to be heading towards a place where I don't even know if we have green finance. This is just all finance. It's just finance. (laughs) Yeah. Ideally, it's 2030 because it becomes so commonplace, the work that we're doing, that it's integrated into every financial institution, not just JP Morgan. Now, finally, I'm going to ask you for just a year. When do you think the globe will achieve net zero emissions? Marissa, what's your number? Well, this sort of sounds like a trick question, Hugh. The world is collectively aspiring to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. But as we know, it's not an easy feat. I come back to Brian's discussion about technology and just frankly, how important that is going to be. You know, at this stage, we're going to really need uh, massive scales of change and technology may have to save us. I'm going to say 2045, only because could anyone have guessed how much of a groundswell of support and awareness that we have for the impact of climate change, even in such a short period of time? 
even thinking about those who have been steeped in this business, the policy for decades, in talking to many of the entrepreneurs and practitioners in and around the world that I'm involved in, I think all of them have been positively caught by surprise for how mainstream this has become. And that just gives me a great deal of hope. Well, I can't thank you enough for two things. One, for ending on such an optimistic note like that, but also both of you for your candor, because I think it's only when we recognize the timeframes that are involved here and the complexity that lies ahead of us, will we see the kind of progress that will allow us to reach some of these objectives, whether it's in 2045 or 2050. And I think having this very rational, well-thought-out expert conversation really gives me hope that we have the right people around the table to get us where we need to be. So unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to thank Brian and Marissa for joining me in this conversation. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Hugh. We really enjoyed it. Thanks, Hugh. And to our listeners, please stay tuned for more episodes of What's the Deal, where I'll be joined by other global business and industry leaders to talk about timely topics transforming the future of dealmaking. This material was prepared by certain personnel of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates and subsidiaries worldwide and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only, is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument, and it does not constitute a commitment, undertaking, offer, or solicitation by any J.P. Morgan Chase entity to extend or arrange credit or to provide any other products or services to any person or entity. Copyright 2021, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved.